Hi guys, welcome back to the Whipped Cream Podcast. I am your host, Bianca Harris. The person we have in the building today requires no <laughs> introduction. Lola of I Love Lola. Hello. Hello. What's going on? Much. Thank you for coming. Here. Of course, thanks for having me. <laughs> Why are you acting all shy already? <laughs> shy. You are I'm not. Shy. You are not shy. <laughs> I'm kind of shy. Um, people who don't know me, so I'm shy to the ones who don't know me. I'm it's just shy. me here, though. Mm, okay. <laughs> all right. So I have this new question. Not new mm-hmm. question, but I have this. I'm going to ask everybody that comes on mm-hmm. this question. What do you? What would you tell before we get into the real stuff? You? Your fourteen-year-old Lola. Wow, <laughs> so predictable. That's such an amazing question. Of if you could go back, what would you tell the younger you? Um, a fourteen-year-old Lola. Well, first of all, I didn't speak English when I was thirteen. Really? So fourteen, I had just started learning English, and I used to be teased a lot because I didn't speak English properly. Um, so I would tell myself. Don't worry, you'll get better. Eventually, you will speak so good <laughs> and so fast <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a challenge, and I feel like it made me very uncomfortable. Um, I think I didn't really be co- get comfortable with who I was until after I graduated university, which is a long time for four How old are you when you graduate university? Well, I'm, I'm old now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Um, well, when I graduated university, I was 22, I want to say, right? I think at 22. That's yeah. how old you're supposed to be, no? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was regular. So, um, but I had, I, I, it wasn't until after that, uh, that I have, I had gone through, I went to school in Kitchener at Laurier University. Mm-hmm. So I had lived by myself. And at that point I was a little more confident with who I was. But as I went through four years of high school, being an immigrant and having to take ESL classes and not speaking English properly was a challenge and it was I kind of so, I can swear right? Yeah of course Yeah it, I think it fucks with your self confidence being able to present yourself to people I, I think it even like it even goes down to like how you dress and how you speak and how you how much you know and how smart you are and even though I was literary smart like I was school smart I was I was I didn't really know what was what was hip or what was cool so I didn't really know how to be around people and um wait wait wait, wait. what do you mean when you say that? I was four. I was thirteen. I was coming. I, I when did from, you come here? I came from Albania mm-hmm. when I was thirteen years old. Oh, so you were thirteen right I when you got here? I was thirteen when I started. I and went, so you I had to learn English in a year. I had to learn English when I, as soon as I touched down, as soon as I touched down a Pearson, I had to speak English. <laughs> so you didn't know a fucking word. I knew a few words because in Albania, my dad made an effort for us to learn English, um, but it was like the literary English English language. Yeah, and. At 13 and 14 year olds don't use proper and it wasn't even like Canadian or American language it was like l- like English little proper books we would read like old books with so are you, English so, you, so, so wait, you came to school talking in Shakespeare yeah basically <laughs> basically but that's how I, w- I would take I remember this this one girl and when I was I've said the story so many times when I was in um, so I came at the end of second semester of grade 8 and I remember this one girl one time told me she was mad at me. And I thought that she meant she was mad about me. Because in English, in the literary English language, that I'm mad about you, they say I'm crazy about you, right? Okay. So I thought she said she liked me. And I literally was, immediately, I was just like, I'm not gay. I'm sorry. And she was like, I don't fucking like you. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I get it now. Sorry. <laughs> but at the time I didn't know. I thought it was I'm mad at you meant I'm mad about you. I didn't know where the where the ver where the proverbs and where the pronouns went. I didn't I didn't understand. Why do you remember that like specific scenario? 
because uh, that specific scenario is a perfect example of as to how improperly I had learned English. Got it. So I literally had to forget about everything I knew and I had to start all over to learn how to speak the lingo of young kids and being coming in at a teenage year. Mind you, in Albania, I never had a TV. I never had a car. I never had a bike. I never had a phone. I never had anything. So we, I lived between a village and a city. There was one bus that took us from the village to the city. Um... So it was, and then when I left, there was a war. It was a civil war. So I had seen more of, I don't know, we had like three TV, four TV stations, a black and white TV. I watched cartoons more than anything else, and I watched movies, but mainly in Italian. So I spoke Italian better than I spoke English. Really? You know um, how to speak Italian? Mm-hmm, yeah. I didn't know that. See, sí, lo parlo italiano. And wow. I remember watching TV when I was little because I used to watch all the cartoons and everything I saw was in Italian with the Albanian transcripts underneath. So I learned how to speak Italian. Um, so that was easy. I'm for so me. mad that I lost all my Italian because I used to speak yeah, it fluently. Because because you don't because you don't because yeah, you don't speak. No, it every I know. Day. I'm the same way. <laughs> I'm actually going to pick up my next book that I'm going to pick up is um, I want to pick up a book in Italian just so I can start speaking it again or at least start remembering certain things. Yeah. But yeah, so coming in as a teenager, not knowing like my biggest influence at thirteen year old at thirteen years old was the Backstreet Boys and Spice Girls. <laughs> I and love here, Spice Girls. Thirteen year old kids know how to do drugs. They've already smoked. They've had sex. Like you know what I mean. Like mm. now, thirteen year olds or so, they know how to straighten their hair. What I didn't even know what a straightener was. I didn't have a blow dryer when I was back home. Like I didn't have all those all those things. So going through high school, not knowing principles that are taught in lifestyle in North America from an early age you kind of you kind of get lost in the sauce and you're not you know you don't you don't really know what's cool my parents didn't understand why I wanted to be cool so when I first came in um in Albania we had this thing where all your grades have to be 10 10 out of 10 we don't measure in hundreds like in 100 percent yeah yeah in 10 1 to 10 Mm -hmm. so I was a 10 student I didn't even have a nine and a half. Like all my grades were ten. I you had to be excellent. There's like a there's a need to excel. Like, and what do they focus on more there? School, mathematics, school, yeah. and like math and um, history, um, and the Albanian language, obviously, like language literature. So I was just really good at math. I, and there was a contest I did when I was in grade eight <clears throat> called the Goss Goss Mathematics Competition, done through high schools and and um, what's the school before high school called? Um, Elementary school? Elementary. Yeah, elementary and high school. Um, and I came six, I think, in the entire state, uh, um, in Ontario. In the oh, province. wow. Yeah, um, I was really, really good at math. And then by grade 12, I failed calculus twice. <laughs> so I, it, literally the focus there is not about how cool you are, what shoes you wear, what shirt you wear. In Albania, you don't really have that many clothes. You bargain for everything. Everything's like a barter system. There's no, there was, at the t- now it's different, but when I grew up, there was no supermarket you go into. Like you buy your groceries at a, at a, buz- at a bazaar. You buy your mm-hmm. clothes at a bazaar. You go and your mom like bargains with like, I want these shoes. I will pay $30 for them or 35 or 25 or whatever you know what I mean so you were lucky if you're getting a new pair of shoes every year so it's not and as a middle class family I thought I was I was rich like I thought we were good but then you come here and that bubble burst like damn so yeah you you got to keep up with the Joneses as they say you know or yeah. and and you don't know how to be a 13 or 14 how to be cool my parents didn't understand what the value of being fitting in with the rest of the kids was when you could excel in school and make something of yourself so at the, the, my 14 year old self i would just say it, get, it gets better and it's this is this is not it. it this does not fucking matter at all yeah 
So I would send it to every, if, there's, if you have any 14 or 15 or 16 or even 18-year-olds listening, honestly, high school, I see kids in high school now that are like worry about how they look and worry about what friends they have and worry about how much their friends are accepting them. And I wish I could go back to even to university with the knowledge I have now of how irrelevant the shit that you put, you're put through in those years is in the greater scheme of things. So life. irrelevant. It's so irrelevant. And it gets better. And I know kids who, you know, go through some really tough times where they go through depression and they'd go through like trying to commit suicide and they're isolated and they're by themselves and and it's crazy because the kids who were the cool kids in high school are regular fucking people right now mm-hmm. not so that I'm not regular but they're like you know regular Joe Schmoes that I see every now and again I'm like oh thanks for attending my concert I really appreciate you coming out with me. You know <laughs> I mean? like, and I was this, I was an awkward kid I felt I was an awkward kid I don't know if everybody else's perception of me was that but that's how I felt and I just feel like a lot of kids nowadays don't understand that being cool in that, during that stage of your life, it doesn't mean that that's who you are for the rest of your life. Generally, it's like the complete opposite. It's completely opposite. Yeah. So when you finally grow up, yeah, it's like it's it's up. like switches almost. Yeah. You, you know just, what I mean? You just stop caring. You just don't really doesn't matter. So yeah, that's what I would say. But that's what I love about you, though, and I think that's why everybody loves you. I love Lola <laughs> because you're so real and so down to earth. Thank you. I got that. I got that. Um, that feedback from when I spoke at Whip. I, I was. What was the feedback? I didn't even ask you. Oh my god. Um, I just got all these girls like you're so real. Oh my god, you just tell it like it is, and I just don't know how to say it any different. And <laughs> I don't know how to be anything else but honest. And yeah. I think that's been my biggest challenge. But don't, you know why that's so, you know why that's feedback? Because most people are not. Yeah, but, but I feel So like, it's refreshing. People are like, oh my God, they gravitate towards it because. But I just don't know how, what other answer I would give. Like when I answer certain questions and I'm like, nobody gives a fuck about what, whatever. And then people look at me like, oh my God, that's so real. And I'm like. <laughs> Well, how else would you want me to answer? Would you want me to treat you like a little girl and be like, it's okay. Yes, you're doing so. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I don't, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to pat somebody in the back for, or, or I don't know how to like fake encourage people. I like to take the best out of a situation and try to present people with the facts. And I feel like facts matter more than anything else because they really truly prove if you, if you point, if you list out the facts of what you're doing and you look at the good and the bad and then you weigh out, you know, what the best choices for you in life are i feel like that's easy i don't know i don't know i don't i don't really even know how to explain myself i just i just don't know how else to answer questions besides just pointing out the fact but that's why everyone loves you i appreciate that thank you <laughs> um okay so you had so you were this kind of like would you use the word misfit when you were in high school in grade nine i used to um paint my nails black and i used to wear chokers and purple lipstick and like shiny lipstick and like really flared pants and crop shirts. But like flare, I mean like the bell bottoms. Like the really flare bell bottoms. So how did Lola go from that to working with some of the biggest artists in the world? And how did you, like where did you get your start from? How did you, how did you, how did you cultivate all the things that you're doing or have done? Do you even know? Hustled. Hustled. <laughs> Hustled. No, um... But before you even, like, okay, hustling to some people very, like really does come naturally, Right. Like some people um, are just have it look, in them, I think. Oh, look, there's no there. There's this. There's so many books that talk about human interaction, and they talk about finding ourselves and finding our inner person, and and um, cultivating the energy around us, and blah blah, blah all this stuff. And I'm I read these books, and I'm like, 
why would you look at it any other different? And I don't understand. I don't understand why people don't do something to the best of their ability. Mm-hmm. Um, I do things that I enjoy doing when I enjoy doing them the best way I possibly can. I'm, I don't want to say I'm like a perfectionist because I'm not perfect in any way, but I want to do the best job I possibly can. So when I see something and I want to do something, I want to do it all. And I want to do it all. I think that's like my biggest challenge in life to try to find. I say this to people all the time, even when people ask me for like mentorship advice, where they're like, well, I want to do this and I'm really good at this and I kind of enjoy this and I enjoy that. And I'm like, the, my piece of advice is I've, I've tried to do that. And yes, you meet a lot of contacts and yes, you meet a lot of people, but you don't focus on one thing that you want to do. And it worked out for me because I, I happen to do a really good job at all the things that I try to do, but you will come short on some of the things that you want to do when you try to spread yourself too thin and then yeah. you end up achieving nothing. Uh, what, is, what is it saying that says, um, ta- many talent, but must master of none? Um, um, I know what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Of course. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I'm, it's slipping my it mind is. right now. But yeah, me too. But it's like, uh, it's like, you know how to do everything, but you don't know how to do one master. thing very well. Yes, exactly. Essentially. So I just put my mind that whatever I wanted to do, I wanted to do it really well. Whereas a lot of people just kind of spread themselves too thin. So what I did was, um, I just wanted to help people. Um, I wanted to, I, I started because there was this group in Kitchener that was, um, I met this guy from a group. Um, out there, and they he said that they he was part of a rap group. And why like, can I interrupt you? Yeah. I just have a question. Why do you think you gravitated to uh, towards music so much? Because you could have done this with anything, really, right? No, I just met a guy. Okay, who was in a rap group, and I wasn't realist. I wasn't like a rap fan at the time. Or okay, that's why I, I want just, to know. That's why I, I want was to just know. Listening. I mean, I grew up listening to um, Africa Bombada in Europe, but then like um, La Bouche and technotronic and like technotronic has pumped it pump pump it up pump up yeah, the yeah, jam yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I, I listen to like old school euro um what's considered house um what's considered freestyle but f- i don't know if you know the freestyle like the dance freestyle like stevie J and yeah like, yeah yeah like i grew up listening to stuff like that back in albania and then like spice girls and backstreet boys and nsync and, and shit like that uh rap kind of came more in the 2000 when Ludacris was popular and missy elliott and Aaliyah and Artists like that. So I didn't really have a deep knowledge in rap. It was just music to me. Got it. Um, I also listened to a lot of Slipknot and Nirvana and I Korn. love Nirvana. I love Nirvana. But I mean, it was like, I I liked anything that made me feel a certain way. It wasn't so much about the lyrics. It wasn't so much about the type of music. It wasn't about the culture. It was really just music. That just I listened to everything. I still listen to everything. Um, my first concert ever was Blink-182. So anyways, um, so I met this guy who was in a group. Uh, and just so happened to be rap at the time. And at the time, actually, my girlfriends were into dance hall. So that's when I got into dance hall when I was 18 and I was in university. And my, the, the, these girls that I that I kind of got in with, um, they were listening to a heavy, like, Vibes Cartel and Alpha Man. So I started going to, like, bachelor <laughs> gyms and reggae parties. And I got really, really big on, on the dance hall. Because, again, I came here at 14. I lived in Mississauga. I didn't live in Toronto. So I wasn't really influenced by the Toronto youth, as I would say, at the time. <laughs> You know, I was like, I was Mrs. Baga girl. Like, I was still a fob. I was a foreign. I was like, I was still into my Albanian culture and like going to Albanian parties and stuff. How'd you dress? 
Oh my god, I don't even ask. It was platform <laughs> shoes and like bell button. But like that was grade eight. I didn't know any better. I just wore my Albanian clothes. And then in grade nine, I started listening to like again at grade nine. I was what fifteen at the time, mm-hmm. so I listened to a lot of like I said, Nirvana, Limp Bizkit, uh, Blink One Eighty Two. What sign are you again, Lola? Aquarius. Oh, I love you guys. Out. Y'all crazy, but I love you. I'm not crazy. So um, I listened to a lot of that, and that's kind of like what I was into. You guys are very intelligent, though. Like I, I'm seriously. Well aware. <laughs> well aware. Yo, get off this show, man. Um, anyway, so so I went. I met this guy. He was in a rap group, and mm-hmm. I was just like, "Why aren't you famous?" And the conversation was very matter of fact for me. I was like, "Why aren't you famous?" And he's like, "Well, it's not easy to be famous." I'm like, "Yeah, it is." I was like, "Why don't you just put on a concert and sell tickets, and then get your song on radio, and then your radio plays your plays your music, and you become famous?" And he was like, <laughs> "It's not that easy." I was like, "Okay, yeah, it is." So I'm like, "Let's do a concert. I'm gonna do a concert for you guys." And then I just went to. What do you mean? Okay, no, you're just saying this too quick in your Lola way like no 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 hang on you don't just say um how old are you at the time 18 19, you don't 19. just say to someone I'm gonna do a concert for you like what but it's easy it was easy to me in my mind I was like you you want to be an artist right you want to be a musician so what is how do you give at the time Shaw Claire Cardi Julie Black that's what was popular on radio right so okay again we're talking 2001 right 2000 2001 no, it was way later than that. Wait, I graduated in 2003. So it was like 2003, 2004. So I'm like, that's who's popular. So I was, I just was like, why isn't your song on the radio? And the guy just was saying, it's not easy for a Canadian artist to get on the radio. And in my head, I was like, why not? This is me as a very green, non-understanding person. Imagine being that's so a good, though. newbie, being like, why is your song not on the radio? I yeah. don't know the policies. I don't know the DJs. I don't know radio stations. I don't know what's what. But I'm just thinking, you make music. I like this. So song. at this point, obviously, you're so young. You don't know anybody or anything. You I don't know, know what's anybody. going on at all. No, no, no. I'm going to university for psychology. Like, that's all I know. And I'm listening to Vibes Cartel and Alpha Men. <laughs> that's all I knew. I just, the guy just made music. And I thought, if you think your music is good enough to be an artist, to call yourself a musician. At the time, I didn't know the aspiring artists of Canada or of the world, okay? I didn't know what aspiring meant, okay? I don't even know if I knew that word, first and foremost. (laughs) I just thought, you are an artist, you make music, I already put you on the same level as I put friggin', um, I don't know, Ludacris. Right. So I'm thinking, that's who you want to be. So why is your song not on the radio? Right. And the guy was just like, it's not easy. I'm like, why not? Why not send your song to the radio station? And he's like, well, they're not going to play it. Okay, well, what if you sell out a concert? So he's not even trying before he, he's saying no before well, he even know. tried. I mean, I don't, I'm sure he had tried, but just didn't have any luck. I just was green. I just didn't know. Yeah. So then I was like, well, why don't you do a concert? So people come and people listen to your music and then buy tickets. And then you do another concert and then another concert and then you get famous. And he was like, it's not that easy. Nobody's booking us for a show. Somebody needs to book us for a show. I said, okay, so let's do the concert then. And he was just like, how, Lola? You don't just do it. That's why I'm, that's why I'm wondering. I'm like, Watch me. Give me a minute. I go to this bar next to my school called Loose Change Louis. I used to go there on a, every Thursday. What's it called? Loose Change Louis. At the time. <laughs> I don't know what it's called now. It's called Louis. We used to go there on Thursdays. My roommates and I would get fucked up in grade nine, in grade nine, in first year university. We'd go there on Mondays, I think, or Thursdays. There was a bunch of bars we went to. So I went and said, if I want to rent out your venue and I want to do a concert, I want to do a party here. And he said, okay, what, well, your option is to rent out the venue and pay a rental fee, or you, may, make, you meet a bar minimum. The bar minimum is $2,000. So what, what that means is your patent, however many people yeah. you have here, you need to sell $2,000 with the liquor. If you don't sell $2,000, you have to make up the, the difference. 
Bet, no problem. So at the time, I was into like the break dancers and the cool dancing crews that were popping. I knew somebody else that used to come to my school to all the parties. They used to dance, like they used to like create dance routines and shit. So I was like, okay, well, I can get a bunch of break dancers. I can get a bunch of girls. I used to know the girls in my school that created dances and stuff for like the university kids and stuff. And I was like, I'm going to get them to open up. Maybe I'll find some other rappers around the music industry. So I went on like social websites that had people who were aspiring this and aspiring that. And then I would start going to part. I would find out what parties were happening in Toronto. I called up Universal Records and I was like, hey, I'm doing a concert in Kitchener Waterloo and I want some of I your love merchandise. You. <laughs> what? It was, like, it was easy. I was like, I want some of your merchandise for me to give away at my concert. And they're like, great, we have promotional CDs for all of our artists. They used to do promo CDs. What I'm trying to say to you that you don't even realize is that you naturally have this in you. Yeah. Like, you're just saying it, it casually. Like, like yeah. I'm going to have a concert. I'm 18. I don't know nobody. I'm going to figure it out. Well, I was 19 or 20. Whatever. whatever. Same thing. Year. Yeah. You're young, right? Yeah, but... But what I'm saying is people don't do that. Especially people do now. Do that. People do do that. But now they've heard, they've learned a lot from other people. For mm-hmm. me, it was, just an, it, it was just a natural thing that I just thought it was easy. Like... I'm going to, you want to do a concert? It's, but I think that being scary. oblivious can actually work very well for people. I'm sure, I'm sure it does. I just, <laughs> I just looked at it like, what's, what is so difficult about doing a concert? It, to me, it was a very matter of fact thing. You rent a venue, you get the talent, you sell tickets, people come. That is it. Is that not the basis of doing a concert? Of course. I'm just right. saying like. Most people are scared. Most yeah, that's what I mean. That's what it. I mean. It's, it's easier to say, I don't know, than to put your mind to it. Like I sat and wrote a plan and I was like, I'm going to rent a venue. I'm going to get, this is my goal is to promote these guys. My, my goal is for them to be the headlining act. Before them, I want to put a dance crew. I want to put a beat battle competition, a bunch of shit that was cool at the time. I'm going to get Universal Records to give me free gear so I can put their logo on the flyer. And then I'm going to give all my money to United Way so I can have a charity involved with it. So that way people want to come because it's just charity. I have common sense. I, to me, it was common sense. Maybe to other people, it's not. But to me, it was. So I was like, I'm, I called up United Way and I said, hey, I'm doing a concert. I want to give you all my money. And they said, okay, great. Here's a form. Here's our logo. Feel free to put on the flyer. Bet. Awesome. There's what? 5,000 university kids like that on campus on a regular basis. So I went and flyered around and gave out a bunch of flyers. Mind you, I had to pay out of my pocket for the bar minimum because he didn't make the bar minimum. I made no money to give to United Way, so that sucked. <laughs> but I also called up HMV. I got them to give me some flyers and some stickers and posters and whatever they gave me. So it was cool for me to get my, my feet wet and figure out. And in the process of doing that, I came across about Canada. Mm-hmm. So... I, all of a sudden, by being into finding all these music artists and finding all the parties and everything that was happening in the Toronto scene at the time, got me really into the art, into the music, into like the lifestyle of it or just the aspect of working behind the scenes. So then I applied to get my own radio show at my college, my Laurier. So I got a radio show. I had like... I had, um, I remember having Cardi, Cardi called and it was a really big deal at the time that Cardi would call into my like university radio station and shit. Cool. And I would like n- learn how to play, how to put the tapes in. <laughs> I would, I have books. I literally have books of CDs, of playlists that I've made of all the songs that I wanted to play. I sat there, I would buy beef DVDs and I would study who was beefing who, what rap. I have this thing within myself where I always had to know I like to know everything about anything that I'm reading or that I'm studying. Like, if you do WIP, I want to know everything about WIP. I want to know who is part of WIP. I want to yeah. know who your panelists are. I want to know what they do. I want to know who they're affiliated with. I want to know who they follow on Instagram. I want to know everything about them so that I am informed 
in every capacity about everything. And I don't care about spoilers. So, like, if, I, if I'm watching a TV show or a movie, I will go on Reddit and I will read literally pages upon pages of comments of people on a certain movie or a certain TV show I'm watching. I don't care about spoilers. I just want to get, I want to learn. I want to learn as much as I possibly can. So, I started learning about you know the rap industry who who was part of whose crew who messed with who who didn't who beefed with who who's friends with who. how old were you this point 21 then i got my my college my show my college show and i loved it and i really wanted to i came across hip-hop canada and i really wanted to write for about canada so i was like please 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 just get me to write like i really just want to write at this point i mean i had learned english like six years prior when i was 14 right so um my university paper suffered in English it was bad but I wanted to write I, I wanted so um I got put in touch with Jesse from Hip Hop Canada who was a who owns Hip Hop Canada and Jesse was like yeah sure you can be a writer no problem you can contribute so he would assign me articles he would say we want to interview Tom Dick and Harry from the Toronto rap scene just random people we need you to find out about we need you to interview them now imagine meeting a rapper that you've never heard of before you know they have no songs published they have no songs on the radio they have no biography they have nothing so they're like, here, interview Bianca Harris. Bianca Harris, is no, there was no Instagram, no Twitter. Yeah. Come on, Twitter came around 2008. This is like 2005 still, 2004. I graduated in 2007, so 2005 still, two years before I graduated. So it was like, find out about this artist. How? I would literally go and find research, find friends. I don't know how I found all this information. Facebook, whatever. And I would go and interview all these rappers. And I would, I would be really, really thorough. And I, would, I was working at Scotiabank. I was going to school. I was working at Mr. Sub on campus. And then I was doing interviews. I worked at an A&W and I worked in a clothing store. Like di- at different times, obviously, like throughout the years. Um, sometimes two, three jobs a year simultaneously. Just one day I would work at the shop. One day I would work at a, the bank, you know, whatever. And then I would find time to like research all these artists and meet them. And I would write amazing stories about them as thorough as I possibly could be. And then rappers started hiring me to write their biographies. They'd be like, you're so good at writing um, stories about us. It looks like a bio. Why don't you just write our bio? So that I would get paid like 150 bucks, 100 bucks to charge to pay to write somebody's bio. And then I was started. People started referring to me as a promoter out in Kitchener, Waterloo. I was not. A, I just did one show. And they were like, oh, there's a promoter in Kitchener, Waterloo. You should talk to her. So to bring you out in Kitchener, because you know artists would come. Most artists, American artists, when they come to, to Canada, they would do. At the time, it was like Lloyd Banks, Mob Deep. You know, it was like the older. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when they come in, they get Toronto, they get booked in Toronto, they get booked in, uh, Montreal, Ottawa. And then at the time they would be like, you'd have to connect with different promoters in like Windsor, Kitchener, Guelph to book you in the local clubs or the local, local colleges. So all of a sudden, because I met so many people and I promoted myself or whatever, people were like, oh, there's a promoter out in Kitchener, Waterloo, you should talk to her. So I started getting invited to parties and I was known as a promoter and writer and whatever. And then I went from being a journalist on Hip to being the writing director. That's what my title was. So I started managing all the writing aspects of the site. So I had 14 writers under my, my wing. I would have to assign them stories, edit all their stories, put them up on the site. Um, I would deal with the Universal Records, Sony Records that would send me. They'd say, okay, um, Rick Ross is doing the PR campaign for his new album. Uh, do you have a writer you can do the interview for? Or Fab is promoting his new album. He's doing press from 7 to 10. Can we schedule you for an, in- for an interview? So I was the, the person for Bob Canada that would coordinate the interviews within our staff and I would do interviews myself as well. So I went from interviewing random no-name rappers to interviewing all the bigger artists. So T.I. came to town, I would interview T.I. 50 came to town, I would interview 50. Same thing with Fab, same thing with Ross, same thing with DJ Drama. And then I would find artists myself and I would pitch them as well. 
And I would just do thorough research. And a lot of the times, management or the publicist for these artists kept in touch with me because I was their Toronto connect. Like, they would right. call and say, like, when I interviewed, I remember interviewing Ross, and I flew, I took the, actually, I took the Greyhound down to New York, and I interviewed Ross in person, and I kept in touch with E-Class, which was his manager at the time. And then I started working with Maximus Entertainment, with Taj and Little X. And I was so good at promotions and just kind of like social media and stuff that Taj was like, well, why don't you run the social media for Maximus? So when we do our Caravana parties, you're doing the social media for us so I started doing that and then I would pitch them artists like hey I just interviewed Ross why don't we book Ross for our caravan party in 2008 then I would call E-Class and say hey I'm working with this company here they need an act for their caravan party do you want to do Ross and then I all of a sudden I started booking artists for Maximus for their parties so it kind of went from being a journalist to being a promoter but I was doing all this all simultaneously at the same time it didn't look to me like it was a different job it just naturally came as something I, I should do. If I know a promoter in Toronto and you're an artist from America and you're trying to come to Toronto and social media is not as popping and people don't have your management contacts everywhere, why can't I just call you? Why, why can't I just use my relationships to do it? Like People would ask me, like, Yo, can, can you book me this person? I'd be like, all right, cool. I never charged a fee. I never charged a percentage. I never saw it as a business. I, to me, it was just the thing to do. It was just a nice thing to do or the right thing to do, rather. So then I started throwing my own parties and... Um, yeah, I interviewed some more artists for Bob Canada, and then I started writing press releases for people. Being that I knew on the magazine side what, as a magazine, we wanted from an artist, I knew the type of press... I, like, I would have to sift through press kits of people and be like, trash, 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 cool. Like, I look at a rapper's presentation and say, you have a really good presentation, your presentation is trash. So I'm not even going to take the time to even research you because I, I, I won't give you an opportunity. Your press kit is whack. Yeah. So... I knew as a writer what type of press kit we were looking at yeah. that I would choose. So artists started hiring me to produce their press kits because I knew as a media person what I would be looking for in a press kit. Right. So they would pay me $1,000 to put together a press kit or 500 bucks or whatever, whatever I was charging at the time. Um, so then, yeah, I went into PR, but not because I wanted to be a publicist, but because I just knew what needed to be done. And that's right. it. It was just a knowledge thing. Um, and then, I don't know, and then I got hired and then... Um, so I was, yeah, I was doing all the writing. I was doing the Maxima stuff. I started doing parties at um, Atelier uh, at the time on King Street. My party started popping off. It was They were really, really dope. Then I started doing Loki on Wednesdays, which is now Lost and Found, but it used to be called Loki at the time. Um, I used to do uh, Loki on Wednesdays. And then Tony Sal, who owns CP Records and now Excel Management, um, hired me to work a project for Belly back in 2009. At this point, I had graduated university already. And I was still just kind of like making a little money here and there, just working with different artists and writing and doing. Um, I went from writing just for Bob Canada to writing for a blog called Smoking Section, writing for a blog, a magazine in Australia, writing for a magazine in um, in the U.S. So I was writing for a bunch of different people and I would get paid per uh, as, a, as a freelancer. I would get paid for, for per interview that I would do. In 2008, I moved to Atlanta for like six months. I just knew so many people there. It was a time when, like, T.I. was really booming and Luda was really booming and, and Paul of the Don was, like, the it producer. Um, and 
I just I just flew down there, rented an apartment, and I just started meeting a lot of people. And I would just be like, yeah, I'm I'm from Canada. And I you specifically went there to meet people, or you just wanted to switch it up? No, I just wanted to meet. I there was a lot of people that I knew there, so I wanted to connect with some of these oh, people. Okay. And I was a writer. I always wanted to find out who was next and what was the, what was happening. So yeah. I found BLB that way. Um, I was one of the first people to write an article about him for Smoking Section and for another for another magazine. Um, and then I found Yellow Wolf performing at a at a pub at Lenny's Pub in Atlanta. I found the dream at, at uh, Red Zone Studios from JQ from the Clutch. Uh, the Clutch used to be like a production trio. It was JQ, Carrie Hilson, and one other person that made up the Clutch. Um, songwriting and production, and um, they introduced me to the Dream. JQ introduced me to the Dream, um, and I met a lot. Of the, but this is back in '08. Then I would come here, and these people were not really discovered just yet, or they had just started popping in Toronto. But I already met them in Atlanta, so I started building those relationships, and I right. just knew certain artists, and I I became like the connecting the, the connecting the dots person. Like I would just the plug. I guess yeah. if you want to call it that. And then on 09, Sal was like, hey, we have a project with Belly and, and Snoop Dogg. We, wanna, we want you to work the record. Are you, would you be willing to? So I worked the record for them, went to Miami, worked with them for a little bit because they were working out of Miami. And then when that project was finished, Sal was like, well, I want to give you a job on CP Records to do online marketing for us. So I was like, sure. So I took the job and I was doing online marketing for, you know, Danny Fernandez, Tyler Medeiros, Belly, Mia Martina, all the artists that were under the roster at the time. And I went across Canada with Pitbull and Florida for Tyler and then Cody Simpson for Tyler because he was performing. So I would go on tour with, with him as his like press consultant, social media press consultant or whatever. And um, yeah, so I did. I, I kind of just got my hands on everything i would do like i would have a camera with me a canon t1i and i would film vlogs i would edit vlogs i would put them on youtube i would just do everything myself i would take photos press photos for my artists i would do everything damn and then i just kind of escalated and went up from there like i'm right on the whole story like there's more <laughs> after that but essentially it's kind of i just i just an opportunity came and he, there was no i don't know how to do this you figured it, it out i just okay i'll do it cool I'll figure it out. No worries. But if you ask me how to design a, a fashion line, I'm not going to be the next, I don't know, like the next like designer because it's not kind of like, I, I don't know how to do that. It's not, I'm not gifted in that. But when it came to administrative stuff and producing things and putting things together, I was just good at it. I just had a niche for it. I don't know. How and, did you link up with French after that? Because that was later on, right? Or was it? That was 2011. Okay. So it was like two years later, but... I was doing the stuff for CP Records, but I also had a blog. And my whole purpose of having the blog was... <laughs> You're like, oh my God, you want my whole life story? <laughs> well, no, it's like... Um, so I started the blog because when I was writing for Pop Canada and doing the Maxima stuff and writing for Smoking Section, a lot of the things that they requested, in order for an article, in order for an article to be published, there had to be a story behind it. And I feel like a lot of artists don't understand that aspect when they, when they try pitching themselves or when they pitch like new releases they don't understand that it has to be a story yes new music cool but like what's the story behind it why does this matter why is this important so a lot of the times if there was no story behind something that i wanted to write about it couldn't go on any blog per se so i decided to open my own blog simply so that i could post music from artists that i genuinely liked so i love lola was because everybody was like oh my god i love lola, I love lola. you're so <laughs> awesome i love lola so i was like well, i'll just call my blog i love lola.net and i just i started it 
And initially it was simply personal opinion stuff, things that I genuinely just liked. And it was oliveblood.blogspot.com, I think, at first. And then it was oliveblood.net. And um, then I had a bunch of people contributing towards the blog. It was like a ton of people, actually. Carla, Hustle Girl, designed my very first blog. The logo was completely darky, did my first logo. It was completely different. Um, it was like a girl. It was like <laughs> a little cartoon me. Um... I had long hair, so then when I shaved my head, I was like, ah, doesn't apply to me anymore. Different logo. We've got to figure this out. <laughs> um, yeah, so I started the blog because of that. And then um, I was doing the parties as I love Lola. And I started doing these interviews called iChat Sessions. At the time, there was this app on your computer on a Mac called iChat. We don't have it. Now it's called iMessage. Yeah. And it's called FaceTime. Yeah, yeah. But it was iChat at the time. <laughs> and you could record it. You could press record and then to the side. So a lot of the people that I knew that were popular, BLB, Don Cannon, DJ Drama, um, they were popular enough for their interviews to get views. So I started interviewing them. I thought sitting down with somebody and doing an interview can be boring. So why don't I just call them the way I call them regularly? The way you FaceTime. Imagine, imagine people... Like recording FaceTimes that artists have with one another. And like that being an interview. So much right? better. So it's like you just get like a different sense of the artist. Yeah, 100%. So I started, I started doing iChat sessions. They're still on YouTube if you search them actually. And they're all cool with it? Yeah, the artist was cool. I was like, okay, yeah. I'm going to record you. I did the one with Mike Posner. And it was like, they were like talking to Lola. They weren't talking to a journalist. I was just like their friend or like the person that they knew, the plug or whoever. Yeah. So we just had like a regular conversation. And then I did an interview with this guy named Ali Boy from Atlanta. He's like a really, really street dude. And everybody was like, how did you get... I was in Albania when I did that interview. I was actually... What, visiting? Gra- yeah, it was winter. It was I spent Christmas in Albania. It was during the holidays. And I was in Albania at my grandmother's house with no heat, just a furnace. And I made, I was the only house in the village that had internet because I forced, I literally had the, <laughs> whatever, the only company that had internet. I made them come down to the village, install it so that I would have internet to do my, my iChat. You're with a G, Ali. I think I think he had just been signed to Atlantic at the time and he had dropped a new mixtape and I interviewed him and I was just knew I I don't know how I don't know why I always just knew who was hot in the streets I always just knew who was popping because pe- most people popular culture didn't know who Ali Boy was but if you ask people who know rap and they're like oh shit I know who Ali Boy is um, or Trouble or you know you have to kind of like really be into the culture to know some of these people because they're like really street but they're still shaped the hip-hop culture in a way and yeah. I just knew them I just somehow I just knew them all and I um, interviewed Ali and that was really cool. And then I was in, I remember being in, I had to go to India in 2009. Why? Um, my blog won this, uh, Diageo was doing this thing with Smirnoff where they picked the top bloggers across the world to go to India and Thailand on a trip um, for Smirnoff to experiment or to see other people's cultures. To see cool. how like the lifestyle, the club, the nightlife in other, in, other, in other countries. So they picked me from Canada. They picked some bloggers from Brazil, India, um, England, Australia, a bunch of different countries. And they sent us all to India and, and Thailand. So I was in India at the time. Uh, was it 2009 or 2010? I want to say it was 2009. No, 2010. Yeah, I think it was 2010. No, that was... Yeah, it was 2010. And... Um, there, um, a friend of mine, Hustle Simmons, who actually plugged me with a lot of up-and-coming rappers, he introduced me to Wale way long time ago, um, he introduced me to a guy named Dillaman who managed Big Sean at the time. 
Okay. And Sean had just started coming out. I don't even... I think he might have been signed to Good Music in 2010. I don't remember. But I thought he was really cool and really dope. And so I wanted to get him for my iChat session. So Hustle put me in touch with Dillaman. Dillaman was like, bet, we'll make it happen whenever. And I was in India. And I was like, all right, let's do this interview. So I did my iChat session with Big Sean. And I thought he was so cool. And Really? Yeah, I thought he was really cool. And I thought the conversation was just super com- comfortable and natural. And... um I got invited to go see their show in New York. I literally hopped on the Greyhound and I went, this is not even that long ago, it's like seven years ago, but I hopped on the Greyhound th- that same night and was in New York and watched the show. The not like not the night of the interview, obviously, the night that I was the day that I was invited. Yeah. I literally was like, no problem, jumped on the Greyhound, went to New York, and he was performing at SOBs. And I saw him perform at SOBs and I was genuinely inspired by how the fans were chanting his name, how they were responding this to him. This is Sean. Big Sean. He was a completely different audience from the club audience that goes on a regular Wednesday night or a Tuesday night or a Monday night or whatever goes to the club. It's completely different from the 16-year-old fans that line up for hours, that buy merchandise, they scream your name, they know every song word for word. Those are catalog fans. They're not single fans. And there's a difference between the two. And most right. people don't know that. There's like the fan that wants to hear, that loves you as an artist. And then there's a fan that loves a one-hit song. Yeah. Those fans that love the one-hit song don't last very long because they don't love you. Yeah. They just like how their one song sounds. Yeah. And a lot of them don't buy tickets. So I love this new audience. Seeing it like firsthand, being on stage, being backstage, seeing all these people. I thought it was really cool. So I went home. And I said, can I put in an offer for, your, for, for a show in Toronto? I want, to do your, I want to do the exact same thing as your show in Toronto. And uh, it was, it was Dillaman and Mike Brinkley at the time. They managed Sean. And they were like, okay, cool. We'll give you the show. And it was really cheap. I mean, it wasn't really cheap. It was five grand. In comparison to what you have to deal with for, like, further along in your well, career. For what I, for That's what, what I, mean. I thought. For what I, I mean, I just didn't know the concert was not that expensive. Like five grand, well, to me, was yeah. not a lot. Yeah. I know it's a lot of money, but it just was not like, it's not like it's a hundred For a concert, that's for, not a lot. Yeah. It's not a lot of money, yeah. you know? So yeah. um, I went and rented uh, Revival and I paid him his money. I put the tickets up for sale. I um, promoted it. I got, hard, I think I got um, Airplane Boys on the bill and I got this other band from this other person from Chicago and I got this other um rap guy from a rapper from ottawa and i put i think i forgot who's djing who was djing the first sean show um this the the meet and greet though at the time i was really good friends because i was a blogger i was very good friends with mecca uh, and shake from Tudor boys yeah so mecca was a dj but nobody really knew that and i was like mecca why don't i fly you to, to toronto and you dj the meet and greet and I remember seeing a meet and greet at the old Stussy store and telling Matt George, who owns Stussy, I was like, why don't you let me do an in-store here? I'm going to kill it. And Matt was like, you sure? I was like, I promise you, if you let me do an in-store, I'm going to kill it. And he was like, okay, cool. So I was like, let me do the Big Sean in-store. So I did the in-store. It was like 200 kids lined up. It was minus 30 degree weather. Sean was crying. He started bawling out. If you search Big Sean crying in Toronto, you still find the videos <laughs> of him. Like, he's like, man, I didn't expect... It was crazy. I was in tears. Then we go to the show. There's a lineup. People are... It's my first show. The doors are late. Um, the doors are opening late. The production's not done setting up the lights. I'm outside crying. At the time, one of my friends... Why? Um, crying because you were stressed about it? I was stressed. I didn't yeah. know. I was, I just like one person handling all this. Yeah, and yeah. then... Um, my friend who I had hired as security, Pat, Pat was like, chill the fuck out. You can do this. Like, chill out. 
It's not then like it's, nothing's gonna go wrong. There's nothing that could happen right now that's gonna like kill this. People are here. Like there's a lineup outside. That's what's the most important. We did the show. It went really well. Sean was very happy. We did the after party at Atelier. Um, uh, Coco and Lo hosted it for me, and it was awesome. It was my 26th birthday when I did the Sean show. I think. Oh my god, I really just dated myself. <laughs> That's all right. Anyway, so that was the first show, and then I was really happy and I was really excited. It was a new. It was a completely different energy that I got, and then I did Sean's second show. I booked him for a second show, and with this time we did cool in house. Toronto. Mm-hmm. Three months later. And then I did 2011. So this is like 2011 now. I did. I helped produce the weekend's first show at Mod Club, um, and then I did. Um, I did Rich Hill, and then I had met French in 2007 when I went to New York. Wow, oh, that ago. long ago. Yeah, from a mutual friend of ours, and. I had been, I, like I said, I always just knew who was cool in the streets. Like, I always just knew who, like, who was listening to what. I always, I have this thing that people say it's like a sixth sense, but I can identify who somebody's audience is very easily. I can listen to your music and see who you are as a person, and I can automatically see the type of people that will are drawn to you. It's just, I can, I don't know, I just something I realize. So I can listen to an artist and know the dope boys are going to come out for this rapper or the 16-year-old kids that want what's next are going to come out for this rapper. So I've been listening to French. French, I put out like 20-something, 30 mixtapes maybe at the time and he had one record, um, Chop It Down and I'm a Coke Boy and they were really popping and I wanted to do the show so I called my friend and I was like, listen, I want you to put me in touch with French Montana. I want to do his first show. And French was like, oh, he wanted a ridiculous amount of money. And I was like, let me I'll do two shows if you're able to work with me on the price. He's like, no, I want this much and I want Toronto. And at the time, everybody was trying to book French, but nobody knew how to get to him. And every people were scared they were dealing with like the wrong people, whereas I was dealing directly with him. And I remember being having another promoter being like, well, I got the contract for French. And I was like, I'm on the phone with French, and there's no way that you have him because he's telling me that I have him. And I'm like, French, I'm like, another promoter is telling me that they have you. I don't understand. Like, this is like, I don't, this is a lot of money for me to pay. Then French was like, bro, he's like, I'm about to go to DJ Drama's radio show right now. Do you want me to shout you out and say I'm doing my first show in Toronto with Olive Lola? I said, I got a better idea for you. I will fly to Atlanta and I'll come to the radio show with you. He's like, bet. I was like, bet. So I booked myself a flight, went to Atlanta, and I met up with French. I took him to dinner. I took him to lunch. We talked about everything. I laid, I laid out the contract. He signed it. And then I did all the paperwork, everything I was supposed to do. Um, I ended up getting Cool House as a venue. Um, we sold it out, 2,500 people. At the time, French had never done a show, a, a concert. French had like two or three. He was doing clubs. So he was doing one song, like Chop It Down, I'm a Coke Boy. He would get paid money. He would go to a club or a strip club and do the song from like the railing or whatever, the DJ booth, and that's it. So this is no his first show. No rehearsal, no sound check, no nothing. This I is his first, 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 first show. show. Mind you. So you've been with him since the beginning. I didn't really realize that. This is the first time he left the country, mind you. He moved to America when he was 13 from Morocco. Same as I... 13 when I was from Albania and he hadn't left since so I did all the paperwork to get him across I did everything I flew to Buffalo I drove to Buffalo to meet him in Buffalo and we drove through customs together and I remember getting through customs and they're them saying okay sir you're good to go he looked at me I looked at him I said get your shit we out no. he walked out he's like yo I'm like yo oh my god you made it we made it he's like I love you I was like yo this is crazy so it was great. I mean, it was like, it was a partnership. You know what I mean? I flew to New York after that. I, did you guys, I met did up you guys get along right away? Hell yeah. 
Yeah, French yeah. is easy to get along with. Yeah. French is French is one of the easiest people to get along with. Like you have to do some stupid shit or you have to be some really, really, really shady to not get along with French. French yeah. French is so easygoing that any everybody that's why everybody loves French. That's why French has never been on the media as a beefing guy, beefing with this person. Cause he's like he just gets along with everybody. Like there's not he's not a he's not a negative person. French is like a very positive person. He's very nurturing. He's super cool. So yeah, we got along right away, and then we did the show. It was awesome. He, I remember bringing him to sound check. I was like, "You gonna do sound check, okay?" And French is like, "Um, okay." I was, I was like, "Yeah, you gonna?" We go in, and Cool House is like a warehouse. So he goes, and he's like, "This is gonna be full." I was like, "Yeah, I promise you." He's like, "You sure?" I was like, "I'm sure." And then when he goes out, and everybody was like screaming, and everybody, he brought Belly out. At the time, I was and I was working Belly's project at the time as well, and uh, it was great. Uh, the, I think the weekend was there too. So you're doing all of these things and you're obviously a, you're just a natural hustler and multitasker and you're doing a million things at one time, yeah. right? And you're linking up with all these huge artists and helping them grow. And like, this is his first show. So you yeah. were with him since the beginning. Yeah. So I'm sure people say to you, cause they see you online doing all these amazing things with all these amazing people. Like they must think your life is glamorous and all these things. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So how do I word this? So it's not even a hard question. I'm just thinking like, do you think people realize what it takes no. for you to do what you have to do? No, absolutely. Like, not. I think that, I think that's what separates people like you from people that like want to do these things and they think it's cool, but they, I don't think people really understand what it takes to do what you have to do what you do. Do you want to talk about that? Pause that. Cause I think that's seconds. so important. Pause that for two seconds. Yes. From that show, I worked with French. French hired me the next day after that show. So I can finish my thoughts since yes. you asked how I got with French. He hired me the next day. I was with him. I helped build his show and his um, his touring and performance and appearance um, catalog in a way. Like his like resume um, from 2011 onward. So that's how long I worked with French. Got it. The first ASAP Rocky show, it was it was one of those, I think, I love what Rocky's doing. Me and Yams were really, really close, and Yams was like, you're going to get the first, it was right after French, actually. I announced my show with Rocky before the show with French even had happened, I think. No, 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 it was, it was just right after. I announced the show with Rocky, sold out in a day, and when we did the Rocky show, it was exceptional. It was awesome, and but it was about building the artist. It, it was about developing something. So when people say, I want to do what you do, we have different goals, or we've had different goals in mind. I do things because they're genuinely the right thing to do, and because I want to work, I want, I want to see a future for the person I'm working with. I love the sound, I love the aesthetic, I love everything this person is about, and I want to help do something great. I want to create something for the culture of the people that appreciate this particular artist. When people get in the business, they say, how much money can I make from this artist? That's why people get in the business. And I'm, I'm trying to kind of find a, a good medium between the two because you can't keep doing shit and lose money you know what i mean but at the same with the same token i feel like you lose a little bit of authenticity when you start doing things for the wrong reasons so i've been doing shit for for what i felt was the right reasons for the longest time but um to answer your question yeah i agree with what you're saying um i've spoken a bunch of panels 
um, including yours, I've spoken to a bunch of panels where people ask a lot of questions like, well, how did you get to where you are? And, and what are some struggles you had to overcome? And what are some difficulties being a woman in the music industry? And what advice would you have to give to people who want to be like you and want to pursue the path? And then I get all these DMs on Twitter and Instagram and I get emails on my account. I want to intern for you. I want to work for you. I want to be like you when I grow up. And you're my goals and you're overall your mom. And like, I, get, <laughs> I get all this shit. And I'm like, I feel that Going back to your very first question of a 14, what would I say to the 14-year-old me? So you like the question now. I always like the question. <laughs> I thought it was a great question. Going, going back to your 14-year-old question, take time to really find yourself. And I feel that a lot of these people who admire my life through social through the eye of social media mind you i don't even post half the shit that i do i know you don't i could tell that i i really and even pictures that i post are like weeks after they've happened they have to they have to fit the aesthetic of my instagram okay (laughs) i can't just post shit just because i want to post it i can't i don't post shit because it's cool i post it because it fits the vibe of my gram um but i don't i don't talk about the things that i do the reason i bring this up too is because i've been around you even just a little bit like just a tiny bit and i can see how hard you work yeah, like you work, don't know a, that. you work like a dog. Like mm-hmm. that's not a joke. Mm-hmm. You do. You work a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can say all these things here, but when you don't, when you see it, it's a different thing, right? Right, of course. And I've only seen a sliver of it, so that's yeah. just like my little like fly on the wall for yeah. a second. But what I'm saying is, I don't think people understand that right. side so, of it. It's like so that's my that's my thing. Like when I sit on these panels and I get all these DMs, it is so heartbreaking because all I want to say is, you're not ready for this. This is not it. This is not life. Just seeing this glamorous, cool shit. And like I said, I don't even post half the cool shit I do because I feel it's corny to just post cool shit because you look like you're stunting to everybody. I don't think that is what should drive somebody to want to get in the music business. And it is such a challenge when I go on these panels and people ask me these questions because all I want to say is not everybody's built for this. Really, But I don't. I think that's so important that you say that. It is sounds so negative and discouraging because it sounds like I'm trying to, to discourage all these people from pursuing their dreams, their goals. And I don't think people understand that I never had a dream of being rich. I never had a dream of being the most successful person in the music industry. I didn't have a dream of being praised or being called mom by a bunch of like <laughs> 16 year old teenagers. Like it was not goals. You know, I don't look at people and be like goals. This is goals. This is makeup is goals. This is lifestyle is goals. I never looked at it like that. For me is how can I how, for me everything was how can I do something that's gonna contribute to society, that's gonna build into something bigger. That's what I did. So I worked really hard because I don't want anybody to look back and be like, she did a shitty job. I don't even take on clients that I, where I don't feel like I can do. I have so many people that reach out to me and I'm like, yo, can you represent me? Can I pay you for a PR? Lola, I'm going to pay you. And I look at it like, I don't care if you're going to pay me. I don't do this for the money. If I did this for the money, I would be fucking loaded right now. I do this because I feel like I can't do it. If you come to me with a project that I don't feel like I have the time to work right now, I'm going to tell you no right off the bat. And I hope that people respect that. And I hope that people don't hate me for it because I feel like I'm brushing them off. But a lot of the time I'm like, I'll sit there and I'll have a real conversation. I'm like, listen, I really can't do this. Do you want your music and your project to suffer because you just want to say you have me on the project when I'm doing a shitty job because I can't follow through with meetings and I can't follow through with interviews? You don't want that. So right now I don't even take jobs unless I know I can do them. It just makes no sense to me. So I just, I, because I'm, I want to make sure that I do a good job. Yeah. If I walk away from something, somebody's like, yo, she did a terrible job. Like when I see that I'm flaking, when I see that I'm not carrying my weight, I know it. 
I know that I'm not. And I, I will have a, an honest conversation with somebody. If I don't feel I don't, I don't deserve. And I've always, I've always, and this is something that it's a challenge that people recently, more business people in my life have been like, Lola, you're amazing. You need to realize you're amazing. Because for the longest time I've said to myself, I'm not good enough. I haven't reached what I feel like I should be reaching. I don't have what I wanted to have when I was 30. I had goals for myself that I wanted to build an empire and I wanted to do this and I wanted to do that. And I feel like life has gotten in the way and me doing a lot of stuff has gotten in the way of focusing on being great at just one thing. And I don't think I've reached a, uh, a level of, of greatness that I think I could have reached or that I wanted to my, for myself. Maybe other people look at it differently, but that's how I looked at myself. And so when you say... When people are like, oh, I want to be like you. I'm like, what? I haven't even gotten, I haven't even gotten there yet. You think I've gotten there, but I haven't even gotten there yet. And I've had to work my ass off to get even here, to get a slither of respect from people. You know what I mean? Of what I feel is. But other people look at it and be like, Lola, you're amazing. You need to ask, you need to get paid for the shit you do. And I'm like, mm, I don't think I'm doing enough. And they're like, what? Are you kidding me? People who do half your job get twice more money. But I don't look at it like that. You know what I mean? Because I don't look at it like, how hard am I working? I look at it like, I should be working this hard. If, if everything, if I, if I'm working, if something is so easy, why should I charge so much money for it? You know what I mean? That's be my struggle. It's only easy to you. But it's easy to me. Exactly. But to other people, it's not. Exactly. Because I don't, to me, it's just common sense. But like you said, shit that is common sense to me, to other people, is like, how the fuck do you do that? I just don't see that. Just, I just don't see that sending, to me, making a call to other people might be, might take a month, something that takes me two seconds to do it might be worth $15,000. And I look at it like, oh, don't worry, I got you. It's nothing. It's no big deal. So that's been my biggest struggle, finding that being able to like see myself as like a really accomplished person because I just work hard because that's how I look at it. I look at it like I should work hard. I don't, I don't think anything should come easy. So what's your plan for like, what do you, so you're saying all of this. Oh my God. You don't I have can't, to t- I can't divulge into my future because I have planning a lot of things and I don't want to kill it here. Okay, you don't have to tell me your business deals. What I'm saying is <laughs> What I'm saying is like what do you see for yourself in in a, in, a, in general? Like for you, your brand, as whatever a, it is. As a leader of culture. Um yeah, I mean, leader of culture I want to say anyway. Um I want to develop strategies. I want to develop strategies on a bigger scale. I want to I would love to find a way to mentor young people and really make a difference in social thought. I don't know if that sounds like a lot, but I really mm-hmm. would love for people who aspire. Let's just let me backtrack a little bit. Now, in 2017, people are influenced by pop culture more than anything else in the world. Yeah. Um, politics are influenced by pop culture, as we saw with their with the American election. Um, I feel like what is cool is what's popular, what's in music, what's in film, what's in magazines, what's in on Instagram, what's on Twitter. Um, and I feel like people's perceptions of so- social right and wrong have changed a little bit. And I think the coolness factor and the popular factor has influenced people a lot more on the decisions of where they want to go in life and what they want to do. And what I would like to do is find a way to connect with young people before it gets to that point. 
um, so that I can help them understand the path that they want to choose for themselves in life without being influenced by pop culture, but mm. without influ- being influenced by what they see on TV or on magazines. I'm not saying things like, oh, well, magazines show that all women have to be skinny because now there's like all these other movements about women who are overweight that it's cool to be curvy or whatever. And I, I don't want it to be as cut and dry as that. It's just yeah. more so really helping young and old people really get a chance to find themselves. I don't know whether it's through... If they aspire to be like me or if they look up to me and if they listen to me, then maybe they'll take my advice. And maybe I can totally find a way to shape their their perception of the things that they should be in life or the things that they should uh, uh, like try to be in life versus just try to be cool and impress a bunch of other people. If they care to impress me, then they'll they'll maybe they'll take my advice. <laughs> impress me, not anybody else. So they impress me, and I don't get impressed by cool shit. So I get impressed by hard work. Hard work makes me happy. Yeah. So totally. Um. Yeah. If I could do that, I think that's one of my goals. Um, I'm partnering up partnering up with a couple of charities that I wanna that I, I'm going to be working with in 2017. Um. But I'm very excited about. But we haven't. Like, I, it's not locked in, so I can't really talk about it. Yeah. Um, I'm getting into managing artists a little bit more. Um, so everything from, like, developing an artist, putting them out there, shows, like, everything that I've done, I'm basically just cultivating into one and then just hoping that that's, that can build into something greater. Um, so, yeah, I think creating cool strategies for our, our, our culture and our, music, our young artists, I think that's kind of what I, my, my overall goal. Awesome. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. That's it. That's all I want to know. That's a lot. And, and, and I feel like I talk about myself a lot, and I really apologize to people who are listening. Why do you think this. I brought you on? To talk about me? Yeah. It should be a conversation, not about who I am. Uh, me, 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 me. I've done all this. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I, yeah, but people want to know. I think people do know. Do they not? I don't know. Not everyone. Okay. I didn't know a lot of the stuff you told me. Really? There's some stuff I didn't know. That's terrible. You never took the time to find out about That's me. not true. We're talking about other <laughs> shit. <laughs> That's not well, true. Well, I will tell you this. I've started reading lately and this book that somebody on Twitter recommended to what me is it? recently. Tell me. It's called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yes, I've heard that I should be reading this. It is very good. I am on my uh, on the last chapter, eight. I think there might be one more chapter. After this. Okay, so give me two little points as we end off. That'll be perfect to end. Give Can me I read t- you two quotes? Sure. Yeah, of course. Can I have my phone? It's by you? Yeah. Thank you. I, I actually, as I go through the book, you know how most people highlight? I actually don't highlight. I Take a pick? No. I write it out. Take a pick. Come on, man. Write well, it out. That's what I See, that's the easy thing to do. The social, the cool. No, I write all the time. And then maybe but... post it on Instagram or on Twitter. Like, oh, nah, this is the quote that influenced me. No, that's just, just people trying to prove that they, that, they, that, read, they read it. that they read. You know, I actually write it out. As I'm going through something, I write out the th- stuff that I think is cool. Um, I don't know why I went into my pictures. Uh, hold on. It went okay. into your nudes. No, I don't have nudes. <laughs> I don't believe in that. Um, okay. I don't know who said this, but... Um, okay, wait, I have a question. This is from the book you read that you wrote down. That's what I want to know. Yeah, I just... I read This is my second book that I just finished since I've been here from New York. What are you reading me? Since, since Thursday, I've read two books. Okay, what are you reading me right now? What right book now, is this from? I am... Well, one is from a book called You Are a Badass from Jen Sincero. Okay. okay, and it's about it's about 
your energy and about recognizing the energy that you put out into the world. Hundred. That's all I fucking read, person. man. Okay, so. But I want to know one from this book specifically. I got you. I'm going to okay. read two quotes. All right, all right. Yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah. One is from Jen Sincero, and it's. Um, hold on. Wait one second. There's, can I read three? Of course. Okay, so two are from Jensen Sarah. One is, it was no longer about being the kind of person who takes... Listen, Lola, Lola, Lola. Speaks no, one can list, no one can hear your fast ass, okay? okay. Slow right. it down. Okay, so from Jensen Sarah, uh, from the book, You Are a Badass. It was no longer about... It was about no longer being the kind of person who takes what she can get and finally becoming the kind of person who creates exactly what she wants. Amazing. That's one. Second quote from Jen is, surround yourself with people who know more than you do. Read about them. Study them. Hang out with them and hire them. Be on the lookout for the perfect coach or mentor or book or seminar because when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Pay attention to who and what flies in your radar and learn as much as you can from them. Okay, that is, I love that one. Yes. Because that was very good. That's what I do all the time. I just study everybody and everything. But then you shouldn't be surprised when people want to study you and ask you to come on podcasts when and talk my, about me, me, me. Don't worry. When my book drops, you guys will know everything about it. <laughs> okay. Um, and then two quotes from Daniel Carnegie, I think, from How to Win Friends and Influence People. There's a lot of really good quotes in here, though. Really, really good quotes. See, this is... How like, much... Should, okay. Like, do you... Should I buy this tomorrow? You can have... After I'm done, you can... I can bring it back to you. Oh, well. No, you're, you're on private jet tomorrow, okay? I can't um, keep up. The private jet is on the 30th, not today, <laughs> but not tomorrow. But anyway, so um, two quotes from this. Here's the thing that you need to know. Every, this is from Emerson. Um, that they quote, The book quoted Emerson in this too. It, said, it says, every man I meet is my superior in some way. In that, I learn of him. Which basically says that every person you meet knows something that you don't know. So don't show people, don't act like you know everything. And I hate when people are like, I know, I, I, I'm, I'm at fault for that. That sometimes I act like I know everything and I need to shut the fuck up and listen to people. But every person knows something more than you do. And you would learn from anybody. That's also... That's also good to tie back to like how we're always on our phones. It's like you wouldn't be, I wouldn't be able to learn anything from the person sitting across from me because I'm always on my phone. You're always on your phone. Yeah, of course, of course. So it's just every person you meet, but it's like you meet a child and you think I know more than a child. You meet an old person, you're like, I know more. I swear these kids are smarter than us. Right. And, but sometimes you learn from people who you least expect it. So basically this is just every person around you is your superior in some way. There's something that you, Bianca can do a lot better than I can do. And I can learn from you in some way or capacity, some way, shape or form. And that's kind of like what the quote is about and then the last quote which is from daniel carnegie i think you say his name is the world is full of people who are grabbing and self-seeking so the rare individual who unselfishly tries to serve others has an enormous advantage he has little competition oh i like that that one's sweet really good yeah really sweet thank you for reading that of course thank you for coming on my pleasure i love lola (laughs) i love bianca harris (laughs) whip all day yay all right thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you next time bye bye